following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church at Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. So what comes to mind when I say the phrase, some things never change? Is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Could it be both? Uh, The Bible tells us, you know, that God's nature is unchanging, right? His word is eternal. Those are pretty good things. We could also look at the order that he has set in the universe. You know, the fact that, that gravity doesn't decide, you know, whether or not it feels like applying today or now, right? Gravity applies every day, whether or not it feels like it. And again, I think we would say that's probably a good thing. It's probably a good thing that some things never change. But what about with like people and with the regular stuff that we come across every day? I mean, is it a happy thing or a sad thing when you think about your job and that thought comes into your mind, I guess some things will never change. Is it a good thing or is it a bad thing when you look at somebody else's life and you think to yourself, I guess some people will never change. Or perhaps most importantly of all, what about when you're looking not around at everyone else? You're not looking at politicians. You're not looking at sports teams. You're not looking at your Facebook friends, even your extended family. What happens when you are looking at your own life and your conclusion is, it is obvious. My life proves it. Some things never change. See, to me, those, those sound like words of someone who feels trapped, doomed to repeating their failures, because try as they might have, some things have never changed. And if you've ever been there, then you also know that that comes with this feeling of hopelessness that can swallow you up when you are seeming, seemingly seemingly powerless to change your own life. Why do some people see change in their lives that really matters? And why do other people go about as like the poster child for that depressing phrase of some some things never change? Some people never change. What is the difference? I mean, some people can even be given the worst of life. They can see trouble and hardship and adversity and even temptations, and they can see them over and over again, but they can come out better and stronger than ever. They come out changed and for the better. And others, they seem to be just stuck in a rut. The same mistakes are there day after day after year after year for their entire life. And it seems as if they can walk through them never learning from the consequences, only becoming worse off after having gone through them. How can we be like one and not the other? How can we become like those who change and grow instead of those doomed to repeat failures? What does it take to change? For the past several weeks, We've been looking at the story of God's people, Israel, or, or you could call them the Jews, um, during the time of a man named Nehemiah. 
and the incredible change that took place in their lives and in their history when under God's leading, Nehemiah rallied God's people to rebuild the broken walls of Jerusalem. And as we've been looking at and we've been learning from this story about Jerusalem's walls, we've been trying to tie some of those principles back to us today, looking at how God might be calling us to restore some boundaries as well. Not just so we can defend ourselves, but so that we can define ourselves and become who God truly wants us to be. Well, this morning, we're going to jump back into that story one more time. But before we do, let me challenge you to hear it with a fresh perspective. See, I think it's really easy to hear this story and just kind of hear the basics of it and kind of go, okay, all right, I got it. Uh, you know, uh, the Jews have been captive, captives in Babylon. Eventually, Babylon got taken over by Persia, and the Persians let the Jews go back to their homeland. Oh, and then Nehemiah came out, and he led a building campaign. Oh, yeah, and Bible teachers tell us this is a really big deal. Like, that's what you need to remember about this story. A guy built some walls, not by himself, actually got a few thousand people to help him do it. And if that's it, if that's all we get out of it, then someone you know, that someone was really motivated to build some walls, I think we will miss the point. Because the walls were needed, the walls were necessary, the walls were critical, but the walls were just the beginning. And what takes place once those walls were rebuilt is perhaps one of the finest moments in all of the history of Israel. Let me say that again. Over a thousand years of Israeli history had existed as, with them existing as a nation. And in this story, this moment in history, after the walls were built, after the walls were built, this can rank among their finest moments. For it was the moment that something incredible really took root. God's people changed the type of people that they would be from here on out. They didn't just change something about their lives. They changed the type of people that they would be from here on out. Let's look at the story. And if you missed the previous weeks, so let me catch you up a little bit. We covered the beginning from, from found in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And we looked at how Nehemiah, far, far away in Persia, serving the king of Persia, he hears about the terrible condition of the city of Jerusalem. Ninety years after the Jews had been allowed to return, the city is still in ruins. He prays about the matter, and God stirs his heart to make a change. God moves in the king's heart as well, so the king grants Nehemiah leave to go look after the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah travels out to Jerusalem, and he rallies every able-bodied man and woman he can find he brings together thousands of people who make rebuilding Jerusalem's walls their number one and only priority until the task is done. They face criticism from outsiders. They, they face death threats, the threat of armies ready to invade Jerusalem. And yet, instead of quitting, they just arm up and keep going. There's a verse in the Bible or the section in the Bible that talks about at times they had 50% of their people holding weapons and defending the city while the other 50% were building walls. 
There's another verse that talks about some people would be building with one hand and holding a sword with the other hand. They just kept going. And in just 52 days, the walls were completed. 52 days. The city had been in ruins for 142 years. And in less than two months, Jerusalem was surrounded by legitimate, rebuilt walls suitable to defend the city. And new gates had been fashioned and hung at every entrance. That is impressive. That is impressive. You can definitely see God's hand at work in that effort from start to finish. And that's the part that gets all the press, right? That's the part you hear about. Nehemiah went and they rebuilt some walls, but it wasn't nearly as important as what happened next. Because Nehemiah answered the question, now what? What good are these physical boundaries we have set with other people? Let me tell you, it wasn't all about locking down the city of Jerusalem so that everyone could just sit peacefully in their homes, maybe binge a little Netflix. No, he saw a God-given purpose in those walls. They were in place so that the Jews, so that Israel could start to re-become who they were always meant to be. And so with the walls up, Nehemiah gathers the entire Jewish community together to start talking about the answer to that critical question, now what? Let's read about what happens next, starting at Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. And we'll read a few sections from this chapter and the next, and the specific verses will be listed in your handout or on the screens. Verse 1. All the people assembled with a unified purpose at the square just inside the water gate, not a hotel. Um, they asked Ezra, to Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given for Israel to obey. So on October 8, Ezra the priest brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included the men and the women and all the children old enough to understand he faced the square just inside the water gates from early morning until noon and read aloud to everyone who could understand. All the people listened closely to the book of the law. The Levites, and there are 13 names that I'm not going to read, but they're there in verse 7. The Levites then instructed the people in the law while everyone remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people understand each passage. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were interpreting for the people said to them, don't mourn or weep on such a day as this, for today is a sacred day before the Lord your God, for the people had all been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. You see, Israel had lost something far greater than its security, far greater than its independence. They had lost their identity. They had left behind their relationship with God. Ironically enough, they had the temple. They had it. 
I mean, it took them a while to get that right, but they rebuilt the temple after they came back in the middle of a city lying in ruins. But they had rebuilt the temple and they had fallen out of the relationship with the God that the temple was meant to honor. And so on this day, nearly 70 years later after the temple was completed, when the people gathered and the people heard the word of God, they're a mess. This is new information to them to hear God's word. When they hear the law of God, which is all about who Israel is called to be, they were cut to the core. They listened from sunrise until at least noon. Nobody's checking their watch after 20 minutes. Are we almost done? Are they almost done? They are hearing God's word about who he is, what he's done, who he has called his people to be. And by the end of one of the longest church services you could imagine, everyone, thousands and thousands of people are in tears because they knew. They didn't see it before, but they could see it now. This is what had been missing. Yeah, sure, Jerusalem needed its temple rebuilt. Yeah, sure, it was important to put some walls back up. But they could now see that the biggest thing in disrepair was their own hearts. They had let their spiritual boundaries crumble. And so their lives were what was really out of control. And they hadn't even seen it until now. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28, written five centuries earlier, says this, like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. And on this day, Israel saw it. That was who they had become. They were the ones that needed walls to be restored. It was who they had become, but it was not who they would remain. Not this time. Israel had had about a 1,000-year track record of screwing up. That's pretty bad. It's worse than any of us have, by the way. They had a 1,000-year track record of missing the point. And I, and I almost wish I could say that they had a 1,000-year track record of you know, trying and failing and trying and failing. But more often than, than not, their history looks a lot less noble than that. For a 1,000 years, it really seems there's been a heck of a lot more failing than there was trying. Trying to serve God wasn't really their thing. <laughs> they were a people formed by God, a people cared for by God, chosen by God for the most important purpose in the universe, to be in relationship with God and represent His goodness to all the world. People were supposed to look at Israel and go, wow, there is no God like Israel's God. But so often, for much of their history, Israel really just lived like a city with no spiritual walls at all. They invited in the false gods, the idols. They invited them into their day-to-day -day practice almost as soon as they had the chance to do so. And they ignored most of what the true God had commanded them to do. Almost from the moment they moved into the promised land, they began this downward spiral away from the one 
Who gave it to them? God never left them. He never betrayed them. He never failed to fulfill a promise to them. But Israel moved further and further away from Him. It cost them their unity. Their country split into two kingdoms fairly early on. It cost many, many of them their lives as God allowed other nations to bring war upon them in the times when Israel was particularly walking away from Him. It cost one of the two kingdoms its identity. Ten of the twelve tribes of Israel were conquered and deported by Assyria never to return home. They just ceased to exist as a nation. And it cost the other two tribes their freedom and their independence. Those tribes, Judah and Benjamin, though they were exiled for 70 years and finally allowed to return to their homeland, they would still be ruled over by one empire after another empire after another empire. If there was ever a people who just seemed to destroy every good thing that they were ever given, God's hand-picked chosen people were those people. If there was ever anyone about whom you would shake your head and just say, some people never change, it was these people. You think your life has a rough track record? These two remaining tribes from the nation of Israel had been missing the points for close to a full millennium. That's just who they were. That was who they were. But it was not who they would remain. Let's read some more of their story, starting at chapter 8, verse 13. The next day, so after the day when the, the book of the law was open and read and everybody was weeping, the next day, on October 9, the family leaders of all the people, together with the priests and the Levites, met with Ezra the scribe to go over the law in greater detail. As they studied the law, they discovered that the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites should live in shelters during the festival to be held that month. He had said that a proclamation should be made throughout the towns and in Jerusalem, telling the people to go to the hills to get branches from olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees. They were to use these branches to make shelters in which they would live during the festival as prescribed by the law. So, the people went out and cut branches and used them to build shelters on the roofs of their houses, in their courtyards, in their courtyards of God's temple, or in the squares just inside the water gates and the Ephraim gates. So, everyone who had returned from captivity lived in these shelters during the festival, and they were all filled with great joy. The Israelites had not celebrated like this since the days of Joshua, son of Nun. We'll get to what's going on here in just a second. See, the prior day had been a great day, a great day. All of what was left of Israel gathered together and had this marathon church session, and people liked it. They read God's word they explained it so that everyone could understand it. And when they were done, there was not a dry eye in the nation. 
And then everyone was ordered to go out and celebrate, and they did. Blam! Success, right? I mean, you could not plan a better event. It was moving. We laughed. We cried. We celebrated. We gathered together. We cheered. We got right with God. You could not have planned a better event. But let's be honest. How many times have you been to some amazing event where you learn something really profound, where you experience God's presence in a mighty way, or maybe you made a new commitment that was supposed to change everything for the rest of your life? How many times have you been to an amazing event and then found out only a week later nothing had changed? Or maybe something did change, but you find out a month later, well, they kind of changed back too. Or maybe it's a year later and you don't even remember going to the event at all. (laughs) So great. On October 8th, there was an amazing event. Couldn't have gone smoother. But the real proof would be in the days and the weeks and the months that follow. And so I love what we see here and in the rest of the book of Nehemiah. We begin to see the proof, not just that something happened, but that something was continuing to happen. We see this, this happening, this, this first reestablish the boundaries that have, that have to be in place for, in order for us to be able to freely choose to be who we are supposed to be. But don't stop there. Then bring everyone together. Hit the reset button. We've got to start over. We've got to re-become. That's my new word, by the way. We need to re-become the people God has always intended for us to be. And everyone feels the impact. Everyone feels the power of that moment. Everyone even celebrates it. But don't stop there. The next day, get back at it. And the people start learning the law in more depth. And as they're going through it, they see something that applies to them right now in their exact situation. They're reading God's law, and it says, in this specific month, you will honor me with the festival of shelters. You will build temporary shelters and live in them for a whole week every year. It says this as they're reading through it. They're like, this, that's this month. Why did it say that? Just a little history. This was a reminder of who they were. This was a reminder of who their God is. When God formed the nation of Israel, He brought a million slaves out of Egypt and made them into their own nation. But they didn't have permanent homes to live in for another 40 years. And so God provided everything they need nonetheless, but He said, you're going to remember this. And so they were supposed to observe this festival at harvest time every year, the time when God's providing everything they need through harvest, he says, and remember that here's where you started. The Israelites, when they came out of Egypt, live in temporary shelters then, and we're going to remember that today. So they were supposed to do this every year so they would never forget. But God's word tells us they hadn't really done it properly since the days of Joshua, maybe 900 years prior So, so, I love where they go with this. It's build the walls, don't stop there. Call the people back to God's word and their true identity. Don't stop there. Go back to God's word. Learn how it applies to you. Begin to see what's right in front of you that needs to change. Don't stop there. Next, make it happen. 
make it happen. And they break a 900-year pattern of disobedience that same month. And then they didn't stop there. Let's read chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. On October 31, the people assembled again. And this time, they fasted and dressed in burlap and sprinkled dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners as they confessed their own sins and the sins of their ancestors. They remained standing in place for three hours while the book of the law of the Lord, their God, was read to them. Then for three more hours... They confessed their sins and worshiped the Lord their God. And then chapter 9 goes on and contains a part of this confession. We don't have time to read it today, but basically the people recount the entire history of their nation and they say, God, we've been terrible to you. And yet you have always been good and merciful to us. And this is a sincere effort. It's not something that was just sourced out of pure emotion. All right, let's do something. No, the big unearthing God's word moments, remember? That big, wonderful event, that was more than three weeks ago. This was God's people saying, we need to do this and we need to do it right. So they worship God and they confess their sins to him for a long time. (laughs) I, I like how this book records just how long these events were. It's like the writer wanted us to know, guys, this was no casual event. This was no flippant moment in the course of God's people's lives. It says, they just listened to God's word for three hours, standing in one place. Oh, by the way, and then they worshiped and confessed sins for another three hours. But they didn't stop there. Chapter 9, verse 38, continues the story. It says, the people responded, in view of all of this, our confession of all the wrongdoing and our confession of how good God is, we are making a solemn promise and we are putting it in writing. On this sealed document are the names of our leaders and our Levites and our priests. And then chapter 10 goes on to describe the contents of their promise. In essence, they promise a return to God, a return to God and a return to His law being their law. They pledge to continue restoring their broken spiritual walls. And I'll say it again, they pledge to re-become a people in relationship with God. And history shows us they really did. They really did. If anyone could have been stuck with that phrase, some people never change, they could. For a thousand years, they made the same mistakes over and over again. But here, they didn't just change something in their lives. They changed the type of people they would be from here on out. They would be God's people living by His word And they would no longer be defined by the world around them. It's a great story. It's an amazing story, really. And and so much more than a construction project. 
I don't want us to miss out what happened here. This story holds hope for any one of us who look at our lives and say, I'm not who I'm supposed to be. This story holds hope for anyone who says, my life, my struggles, my failures, my sins will never change. This story shows a 1,000-year-old lost cause become new again. And so in just a few moments that we have left, I want to leave you with some lessons learned from this story. It is a great story. It's amazing that Israel finally got to this turning point that resulted in some lasting change, a new beginning in their relationship with God. But we've got to ask the question, how? How? What did it take for them to turn the corner? What can we learn from them? Let me share four quick observations. First, it took listening to a godly outside influence. It took listening to a godly outside influence. As we've been going through this story, I've been throwing out a lot of timelines and dates and years and everything, but the most shocking one to me is that 90 years. The 90 years that passed between the Jews returning home and Jerusalem's walls starting to be rebuilt. The Jews had gained their freedom. They had regained their homeland. They had finished their time in exile. Now was their moment. Now was their chance to get it right. Now was their chance to get back into the stream of God's blessing and to actually be the nation who serves God and is so blessed by Him that all the other nations would look at them and say, how great is Israel's God. This was their opportunity but two generations pass and their capital city still looks like a war zone. And here's the deal. They were so used to it by then, it was like they couldn't even see it. They couldn't see it. And because they couldn't see it, they were never going to do anything about it. It wasn't on somebody's list and we just couldn't get around to it. They didn't even see it anymore. So the first thing that it took for them to restore their broken walls was for them to listen to someone else. Nehemiah could see what they couldn't see, both their physical needs and their spiritual needs. He saw this. And Israel never would have turned around if they had just kept listening to themselves. It wouldn't have happened. They had to allow another godly voice into their lives to help them see what they were missing. And the same is absolutely true with us. You and I, we need godly voices in our lives besides our own. We need pastors, we need teachers, and we also need truth-telling, wisdom-filled friends and acquaintances who don't have any special titles. We need them to help us see what we can't see. We need those people, and as Nehemiah's own story shows, we don't just need people. We don't just need people. This outside godly voice is particularly found in God's Word. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11 says, the Word of God is alive. It's active. 
sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I think it's real easy for us to read the Bible and see the storybook or to read it as a history book or to even read it as the textbook. But here's the challenge. Read the Bible like a mirror. What is it saying about you? Read the Bible like a sword that wants to pierce to the innermost parts of you with the truth of God's word to speak to you about who he has called you to be. Changing a 1,000-year-old track record required a godly outside influence, but not just having one, listening to it. Second, it took a supportive community. It took a supportive community. Throughout the book of Nehemiah, you'll find a recurring theme. This was an all-Israel thing. This was an all-God's-people thing. Every able body worked on the walls. Every able body returned to God's word. This wasn't just a Nehemiah thing. It wasn't just about what the leaders did. This was about how the people responded to that godly voice and what the people joined together in doing. In their book, Boundaries, uh, doctors Henry Cloud and John Townsend, the authors, they stress that when we are creating new boundaries, so new commitments, new places where we're going to say no to some things so that we can say yes to the things that we're supposed to say yes to, they say when we're creating new ones, it always involves a support network. We need that relationship as fundamentally as we need air. They don't say it's recommended. They don't say it's a good idea or nice to have. They use words like need to and always. It's part of, of this working. It will not work without a supportive community. When Israel sought to rebuild the physical and spiritual walls, they found plenty of opposition against them, and we will too. But they have found strength, they found accountability, and they even found joy in doing this together. It took a supportive community. Third, it took repentance. We looked at this in detail today. Seeing God's people not just admit Hey, we sinned. <laughs> they didn't just admit their sin, but they also began to truly change their behavior. They began to turn in an opposite direction. And repentance needs both of those things. See, sometimes I think it's so hard for us to admit we're wrong, right? That is pulling teeth, make me do anything else but admit I'm wrong, please. So by the time that we finally admit it, we get there, okay, I'm wrong, I confess, I have sinned, please, please, Forgive me. We feel like our work is done. That was, that was really hard. But that's just remorse. That's not repentance. Remorse is an emotion. It is a feeling that is supposed to motivate us to repentance. It's a pain in our heart that says, you need a change in your life. Well, repentance is where that change starts. It's a turning around and walking in a new direction, taking those first steps in a new direction. 
Finally, what did it take to snap a 1,000-year losing streak? (laughs) It took listening to a godly outside influence. It took a supportive community. It took repentance. And it took continuing action over time. Continuing action over time. For one time in their history, Israel didn't stop pursuing God when they either found victory or failure. Israel didn't stop pursuing God when they found victory or when they found failure. Think about it. Those are the two times in our lives when we stop pursuing God. Either, you know, we get to the goal, God, get me through this, and we get through it, and we're like, thank you. I'm glad that's over with. I'll see you again for whenever the next thing is. And we kind of give up. We happily give up, but we give up. Or something terrible happens. Things don't turn out the way we are, and we're like, why did I waste all that time pursuing God if it was just going to end up this way anyway? And we give up. Isn't that terrible? If God comes through for us, we give up. We need the rest. If God doesn't come through for us the way that we want Him to, we give up. We're mad at God. But neither of those places are where we will find lasting, meaningful, and awe-inspiring change. It will only come from continuing action, continuing to pursue God over time, in victory and in failure. You see, Israel still failed more after this story. I'm not going to, you know, tell you the rose-colored glasses version of the story where they made the change here and everything was perfect from then on out. They still failed some more. As a matter of fact, by the end of the book of Nehemiah, you see that there are some more things that still need to be corrected in Israel's, in Israel's life. Looks like they have a, a temptation to fall back into some old patterns again. Israel still hits some snags. They still failed some. And I hate to break it to you, but you and I will too. We will. When we try to turn the corner, we try to change some sinful pattern in our lives, we try to build a boundary, a spiritual boundary that hasn't been strong before, we're still going to find that. But here's the difference. It's not in whether or not we will fail or totally succeed, but it's in how we respond when we do. It's continuing action over time that changes something bigger and more important than the outcome of some part of our life. It changes the kind of people that we are.